It is Tuesday, May 12, 2020. We've got a loaded tune-up for you today. Paul Jones of the Toronto Raptors stops by to talk about The Last Dance. Part 7 and 8 aired on Sunday night. We'll talk all about Jordan's decision to retire. Plus, we'll remember the late, great Little Richard. The innovator. The architect of rock and roll. Nobody did it better. Keep it locked. This is The Tune-Up. Welcome on into the show. My name is Denny Gallagher, and I'm joined by the snare campaign provocateur. And some days I'm just drawing a blank, but he never is. It's Benny Horowitz. What's up, dude? <laughs> Why do you think I never draw a blank? Oh, oh, just come too on. quick. Oh, too quick. Too quick. You know, all all of those years of just banging on drums and torn around, you've always got some snappy. So it's it's so funny. <laughs> You're so quick to call me a Bernie every once in a while too. What is this? <laughs> back and forth. Back and forth. Come on. First I'm slick. Then I'm not. Oh. How's it going, Danny? Your hair looks nice. You're oh. looking like you're looking like uh, Quinn Snyder again. Oh yes, you know, which means I too will never win a championship. Not just kidding. Um, <laughs> you see Rudy Gobert uh, online yelling at little kids playing Call of Duty. Oh really? Yeah. Casting dispersions. He's having <laughs> a bad six Dude, months. He's Let just like he's not looking so good. What can you do? But what's new with you, Benny? How was your weekend? Oh, it was nice. Just living a dream. A family man in quarantine, doing my thing. Had my daughter's birthday oh, in wow. quarantine, which was actually very nice. Managed to give her a good event. Luckily, she's young enough to not have a group of friends who are massively disappointed yet. Hopefully, this is cleared up by next year. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I basically turned turned a house, stayed up until one in the morning, and turned a house into a into a mermaid cove for oh, her to walk gosh. down to Look in the morning. You. you know? Look at you. I'm trying to, you know, I want to earn that dad of the year mug I'm going to get in like 10 years. I want to earn it, you know? How are you, Danny? What's going on in, in Jersey City? I'm really impressed with one thing. By the way, quick update. The lack of people wearing pants hasn't gotten better, though. I did see a guy today roaming the street, roaming the wild in a suit today. So okay. I don't know. I don't know what kind of shady stuff he's up to. But if you need to wear a suit during quarantine, it's got to be bad. Or maybe it was just that, like, yo, I got so many nice suits, and I haven't been able to go to work in a couple months, you know? Some people like looking good. I'll never understand that. I've never... Sometimes I see a man who's just really well put together. I look at the outfit. I'm like, wow, those shoes and that hat and that ascot or whatever they're wearing, it all took thought. And then I imagine, I'm like, if they have that, that means they have like 20 of these like ensembles in their closet. They need to keep them clean. They need to do, you know, stay on top of uh, fashion trends to know they're getting the right things. Anytime I see a guy like that, I go, wow, that looks exhausting and respect to him. But I will never be that guy. So that's pretty much what was your first impression the first time we met because I walked in in a three piece suit to your uh, lair. Your, That's your, it. Your drum layer. That's it. You shouldn't have showed up to my dungeon with a wearing a smoking jacket and an ascot, Denny. That was that was very very hoity toity. I saved that for the professionals, like my man Jason Jackson. <laughs> All right, Ben. Let's get the show on the road. It is this day in music history. <laughs> Benny, what do you got? On this day in 1960, two very famous people, Frank Sinatra and Elvis Presley 
appeared on the same TV special and performed each other's hits. Elvis singing Witchcraft and Sinatra singing Love Me Tender. Uh, It was pretty cool. I looked into this. It was Sinatra's fourth and final Timex-sponsored variety show. And I guess his ratings were slipping, wanted to be with the younger crowd. So when Elvis came home from his military service in West Germany, he was asked to do it. And Elvis held out for $125,000 and said, I'll only perform two songs no longer than six to eight minutes. The colonel was a badass. Let me tell you something. He grabbed Frank Sinatra by the short and curlies and got him what he wanted, which is pretty impressive. So Sinatra was not stoked and acquiesced for the ratings. The whole thing went off well. But funny part of this that I found was in the late 50s, Sinatra and Elvis had a little bit of a public quarrel. Mm in the press now listen to this a french magazine called western world in 1957 frank sinatra described rock and roll music as sung played and written for the most part by cretinous goons and by means of its almost imbecilic reiterations and sly lewd in plain fact dirty lyrics and as i said before it manages to be the martial music of every sideburn delinquent on the face of the earth this rancid smelling aphrodisiac i deplore you fucking serious frank (laughs) goodness gracious that's not just like hey i don't dig this new music that's like he, he he drew a line in the sand i may forever say fuck frank sinatra after reading this quote Okay, first off, because apparently he wanted nothing to do with fucking Little Richard. (laughs) Now, Elvis, when asked his reaction, responded, he has a right to his opinion, but I can't see him knocking it for no good reason. I admire him as a performer and actor, but I think he's badly mistaken about this. And if I remember correctly, he was also part of a trend. I don't see how he can call the youth of today immoral and delinquent. So Elvis shot back in about the nicest way you could in 1958 you know you couldn't start your rap battles yet but i do find it funny that uh frank acquiesced to this uh rancid smelling uh sideburn delinquent to gum in his show just because he needed ratings some things never changed any <laughs> well i know that we should go back and redo the open because from now on it's the snare campaign provocateur the sideburn delinquent himself it's benny horowitz <laughs> sideburns are short these days they're going a little gray yo these things these homemade sideburns forget about it forget about it. i've just been out here with the trimmers but you better show up next time with a mustache or this is over i just shaved today see this see this it just looks like you shave every day. I don't think you, what even comes in that face when you let it go. I don't even know. Little blonde oh. curls. <laughs> well, Benny, guess what happened today in 1984? Don't know. Lionel Richie started a two-week run at number one on the U.S. Singles Chart with "Hello, Is It Me You're, me looking, you're looking For." for? His second U.S. number one, and also went number one in the U.K. So big ups. Lionel Richie. I can see it in your eyes. But yeah, so that's that's my submission. There are a couple other good ones. and But yeah, that's what we got for today. But speaking of which, let's get to the big story of the day. Benny, it seems like a bunch of people passed away this weekend. And they're really not going to get their due. Surprised that little Richard got as much run as he is. But as we all know, he is the architect. He is the originator. He is all the stuff to rock and roll. Benny... 
your remembrance of Little Richard? I mean, it's funny. It's like my first thing always goes to the film Down and Out in Beverly Hills, where he did a small cameo in that film. And, you know, like a lot of things, you know, people like to be cool about their entrance into things. I saw that movie so young, that was the first time I saw Little Richard. (laughs) So I wasn't on Tutti Frutti or something when I was a kid. But to me, like, I always see the sort of... Now, I don't say rock and roll because, as anything, there were predecessors before all these guys that none of us ever heard of. That's just the way it works. Um, But when I see the Mount Rushmore, I think of Elvis, Buddy Holly, Chuck Berry, and Little Richard as the big four. I was told by my friend Frank that Roy Orbison should be in this. I'm not sure. But this is officially the last. The last of the big four to go. And it's sad. It's, It's like you're finally seeing the real generational passing of rock and roll. I think Jerry Lee Lewis might be the only person from that era who's, who's still around. Uh, but he lived a long life, um, not necessarily always a happy life and a peaceful life, which is a sad part of it. But uh, he changed music forever. He obviously was one of the originators of rock and roll. And I think the thing that Little Richard can take more than every than anyone of the group I just talked about, maybe not Elvis, but it was the, you know, the iconography. He understood something. It's like, you can't put a Chuck Berry lyric up to a little Richard lyric. Chuck Berry's lyrics were better. Mm. Little Richards were God knows what he was talking about. Most of the time, like butt sex, weird stuff, (laughs) but the, uh, the style, the thing that he brought to the equation to me, the most was his style the braggadociousness, the vibe, the color, the makeup, you know, who the hell was, had the guff to do that, you know, in the, in the late fifties and actually pull it off. Um, so I think that's, that's his biggest, uh, contribution to the overall narrative is less the music and more the way it was presented, because I think you're still seeing the trail off of the way it was presented now. Now, he had an insane background. I'm not sure if you knew anything about him. He was born in Macon, Georgia. He's kicked out of his house when he was 13. He somehow knew Otis Redding, and he heard R&B, blues, country, working a concession stand at the Macon City Auditorium. He won a talent show and signed to RCA at 15 years old, becoming Little Richard. He struggled for a while writing songs, and within five years, he was washing dishes at a Greyhound station in Macon. So, I mean, that is not uh-uh. an easy start right there. And it all uh, came in conjunction. His, his father was uh, murdered by his best friend who had just gotten out of jail. And you don't even really know why. And then randomly, he thought of Tutti Frutti, thought of the chorus, a wop bamboo bop, the wop bamboo while he was washing dishes and sent a really, really rough version to specialty records in Chicago. The owner and producer of the label randomly needed a vocalist for a few tracks, and there it went. And in those years, in in a three to four year span right there, he did Tutti Frutti, Long Tail Sally, Rip It Up, Lucille, Good Golly Miss Molly, all within three years before he was like 20 years old. Then he went back to Bible college and did gospel for another five years and came back in the mid-60s as a rock and roller. So... He never really like hit again. He never had a top 10 hit 
since Tutti Frutti, which is in the late 50s. But I think it's one of those things that obviously since he never, he didn't show up in pop culture for a couple of decades, but every artist who came was giving him credit. Mm. You know, Bob Dylan came and was like, yeah, Little Richard. Another artist came, they're like, Little Richard. And as the years went on and went on, everyone's like, oh, this guy really helped invent rock and roll. So it's a gigantic loss. And then, you know, on top of everything else, I'm not sure how much was intentional or how much was accidental just on who he was. But being who he was in 1958 on the cusp of the civil rights movement, it was transcendent and it and it totally changed culture. And I think you can really give him a lot of credit for that. In a little bit, we're going to talk about the Michael Jordan documentary and how he walked away at the height of his powers. Little Richard did like, like the same thing, the height of uh, pop music uh, popularity, and he just walks away to be a, a touring minister, uh, which is crazy to think about now. But later on, he challenged ideas about sexuality that were 50 years away from being accepted and, and stuff like that. People like like Prince and how they push the needle forward aren't possible without all of that. So I think it's interesting when you look at at his impact, not just in music, but like across the board in terms of how people think of things, because oftentimes uh, for new ideas to come through, they need a face. They need someone to like push the needle forward. Sure. And in many ways, that was him. I mean, he definitely kind of had a Jack Kerouac ending mm. where, you know, he got a little old and he got detached from the thing he was a part of early on. And, and he, he did say some pretty awful things about being gay or trans, you know, later in life in his eighties that, you know, he'll always be known for by a certain community. Mm. And I think there's going to be a, a long conversation in the same way as, you know, people forget Jack Kerouac. They're like, Every 18-year-old kid grabs a copy of On the Road and goes across the country and does this cool hippie shit, forgetting he died as like a drunk, you know, conservative anti-Semite up in mm. Massachusetts, you know? <laughs> so sometimes the legacy of these guys is is a lot a lot more romantic than right, the actual exactly. narrative. <laughs> but that's all part of narrative building, and that's all, at the end of yeah. the day, really, culture is. But I want to look at a overlooked... I honestly think an, an overlooked part of this man's entire legacy is the 90s, okay? Because I think for people <laughs> between our ages, right, sure. uh, he was a big part of introducing people to regular music on, like, on your Sesame Streets, singing the theme song for the Magic School Bus, like a bunch of those kind of things. Now, that won't be what he's known for, but I think for a, a lot of people, that kind of introduction to celebrity, to pop culture, is through those shows, and in many ways, he accomplished that. Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, is purple, is purple clothes, or <laughs> purple yeah. clothes what, what they are to society without Little Richard? Exactly. He even said that to Prince. When <laughs> Prince came up and started wearing his purple jumpsuit, he's like, I invented that. I started wearing purple first. So big ups, Little Richard, you'll be missed, man. Rest in peace. All right, coming up next, Mr. Paul Jones. Jonesy, as they call him in the business, the voice of the Toronto Raptors. That's next after this. Let's turn our attention to the guest line now, and if Sunday nights are about MJ, then today's going to be all about PJ. Paul Jones, radio voice of the Toronto Raptors, joins the program. Paul, how's it going? I'm good. I'm good. I'm great to be here, and uh, 
Hope you guys are safe and, and staying out of the crossfire, especially in New York. Yeah, exactly, right? So I want to touch on this first with the world on lockdown. How has the gradual reopening of the OVO Athletic Center been going up there? Well, I mean, they got the okay on Friday. And, um, you know, I, I think it's a lot to do with public perception and making sure that, you know, as a, as a pro sports team, you don't come off as somebody who's privileged and suddenly get, you know, something that the regular person doesn't get. So the Raptors didn't actually, didn't actually open it till Monday and only allowed one is they are only allowing one guy in at a time, not mm. before. So, um, you know, they had to answer questions. We were the, the last team to play the Utah jazz, the Raptors before, uh, the shutdown happened. And, you know, there were questions about the testing and, you know, the Raptors being tested here in Ontario. So there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, kind of public things that you're, you're trying to navigate right now. So I expect it'll be slow. And, you know, they've said that you can get into the facility, can't use the, the bathrooms, can't use the dressing room, can't use the weight room. So it's basically like going to an indoor park to shoot at the basket and then you go home. Now are most of the, the players, the, the people, in and around the Raptors, are they around Toronto? Are they are they working out? Are they any able to work out together at all? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, there's yeah. only there's only a handful of guys here, okay. um, and and uh, you know it, it'll be great for Serge Ibaka, who's been <laughs> running the steps of his condo and and, and you know uh, doing doing yeah. doing curls in his in his uh, right. in his bedroom kind of thing. Yeah, but, Rocky Four style. Everyone. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but um, uh, you know, I, I I don't anticipate that there'll be any kind of group workouts. And like I said, for guys that are already somewhere else and are safe and are able to work out, if you've got, you know, a gym in your backyard or, you know, a park around the corner, why get on a plane, travel to Toronto, take that risk only to come into a gym that you can't use the weights, you can't use the shower. There's only one coach there. Like, you know, stay where you are. It's about reducing the risk. That's the point, yeah. So we've all heard varying timetables, you know, late late July, August, some sort of abbreviated playoff format. What have you heard uh, being close to the Raptors and, and the NBA up there in Toronto? You know, D, I was, I was talking to some people just before I came on with you, and some of them said they didn't see how the NBA was going to play two, three weeks ago. Yeah. Now they're hearing the rumblings and, the, and they're hearing talk and uh, precautions being taken and uh, everything carefully systematically set up and they think we might be able to play. So, um, it would be great. Uh, I really think the idea of the bubble cities, you know, the, the pop-up spots, I think they're really coming into focus right now. So if we do play, I think that's what you're going to see a team, you know, or, or a cluster of teams in one spot. Uh, it's unfortunate that a place like Toronto can't be one of those, but you've got an international border to cross quarantining when you get here. And, and I guess if you're the Raptors, it takes away one of your greatest advantages, and that's the home court advantage. Right. Speaking of that same home court advantage, I know, you know, Michael Jordan, you know, if he was around in the days of social media, it might have been a little more talked about what he was up to at night. But, you know, Toronto, I've been there a bunch. It has a reputation. <laughs> yes. It's good going out town. You know, I know it's a, it's a James Harden naughty town. Um, 
So back in the, the mid-90s, like Michael Jordan's in Toronto, where's he going? What are those guys doing in those days? Um, I, I don't know where they're going. Like there's, there have been all kinds of places. Uh, you know, <laughs> they're, they're, uh, there used to be a spot called Government. There, there, were, there are all kinds of spots downtown. And um, to, your, to your point, B, um, uh, two years ago, uh, Portland won a game in Toronto on a Sunday afternoon. Okay. Damian Lillard went crazy. <laughs> and the first line from Terry Stotts in his post-game news conference was, we just won the toughest game that there is to win. And people looked at him like, what are you talking about? He said, a Sunday afternoon in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> right. and, and Toronto became notorious or infamous maybe for um, the Saturday night life and then the Sunday one o'clock games, which started with, one of the original owners, Isaiah Thomas, who did it for the kids. He want he, games were at seven o'clock, and he wanted the game Sunday afternoon so you could bring your kids because that was the next generation of fans. Well, <laughs> that seventy-two and ten Bulls team, one of those ten losses was to Toronto. Right. And if you listen, it, I had an IG live chat with Tracy Murray last week, and he said Ron Harper told him that. They were getting back to the hotel just in the wee, wee, wee hours of the morning. I think they're just beating the sun back to the hotel. Right. And he said to Tracy, you notice you guys had both sides of the court to warm up because we didn't do anything. <laughs> and, and even with that, Chicago barely lost. So, yeah, Toronto's become one of those places that, um, you know, I don't know if it's the South Beach flu or the South <laughs> Beach press like Miami, but uh, Toronto can get you if you're not careful the night before. I feel like it's the closest thing Americans taste to Europe. You know what yes. I mean? I feel like you go up to Toronto and there's certain, you know, American restrictions that are a little eased up. Dinner's a little later. Bars might stay open a little longer. People are taken in the night in sort of a, a different kind of way. The same way every time I've been to Germany is the only time I've seen the sunrise. And I feel like Toronto has the, uh, the same kind of thing to it. It's like a little little piece of like free-spirited Europe, you know? Yes. Yeah. I saw the sunrise in Barcelona when I was covering the dream team in 92. <laughs> so I got my taste of it. And Toronto is a very multicultural cosmopolitan city where no matter what your racial, cultural, ethnic background is, you can find your people. Um, right. You know, Andrea Bargnani came here. I grew up in a heavily Italian neighborhood. They found him. Um, right. You know, Euro slow car back in the day or, you know, they, they find the Ukrainian community. Valanchunas, the Lithuanians turned out for him. Um, it was always seemed to be Croatian heritage night when when, you know, when Kukoc came to town. And, right, right. you know, I, re I remember being in the locker room once and, you know, all these people were there uh, waiting outside the gates to get in because Vlade and Peja and the Kings were playing. And I remember standing in the locker room and some guy handed Vladi the tickets and he looked at him and he said 312 where is this outside arena like he just he, <laughs> uh, sorry man those are the only tickets they got because Toronto to, people love basketball in Toronto and you know they 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 turn out from every every cultural corner of the city to watch their 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 guys and it doesn't matter whether where they're from I mean we have Greek heritage night when Giannis comes to town and after a game in Toronto, Giannis will dress and come out and address five, six sections of fans 
that have waited to be there for a kind of like a meet and greet with him after. So Toronto's very multicultural and um, it's a great city. It, it, it really, really is. And it loves its basketball. That's an unbelievable way to tamper without getting a fine. I respect uh, the heck I, out of know, that. As soon as I said that, I'm like, one of these guys is going to pick up on it. I'm a broadcaster. I can't be fine. Exactly. <laughs> and, and you know what? If I had the money to be fined, I'd gladly pay it. If I had that kind of money, I'd gladly pay it. We see some pictures of you at the nice private table soon. We'll know why. <laughs> well, you brought up the dream team. Obviously, they talked about it last week. You were right there in, in the thick of things. What is your favorite story from that team? And did you learn anything off of the last episodes about that team? Um, not really. I, I, I mean, I was around it. I, I remember sitting with Quinn Buckner, um, at the news conference when the entire teams took the stage and the paparazzi and the cameras going off was crazy. And, and Quinn, I said, wow, this is nuts. And Quinn Buckner, who by the way is a state champion, uh, an NCAA champion, an Olympic champion and an NBA champion turned to me and said, this bleep is going to be bigger than the Olympics. And I remember watching world-class athletes from other disciplines hurdle barriers to get close to Michael and Magic and Larry and Ewing and, you know, and, and, and Pippen and Stockton. And it was Robinson. It was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. And I, I, I just learned that, that basketball had a, had a big following. I mean, I was watching guys. This is before we had digital video and camera phones and stuff like that guys taking a 35 millimeter camera and handing it to their buddy on the bench and saying, when I'm guarding Jordan, take your, <laughs> take a picture, you know? Right. And, and, uh, it just, it just told me that basketball was big and this was before it came to Toronto fellas. And I just knew it was going to blow up. It was going to be worldwide. And I was just hoping that, you know, Toronto would be in the mix at some point to get a team and, it happened, you know, four or five years later. I was wondering, I mean, you've, you've been around a lot of these people and seen a lot of the successful champions. And I feel like Jordan's edge and kind of, the you know, the borderline mean spirit he sometimes had with his uh, teammates and stuff like that is re coming to light through this documentary since it wasn't, as we mentioned before, yeah. as, you know, uh, put down on social media, no one was complaining publicly at the time. What you know, and obviously Kobe and a number of other competitors kind of, you know, took a little bit out of Jordan's playbook. And in your experience, what level of I don't suffer fools lightly is necessary for success in the NBA? Like even, you know, a Tim Duncan had had something there that at least held people accountable, not in the same way Jordan and Kobe did. It is a version of success in the NBA even possible without your leader having some aspect of that. No, it's not. It's not. I mean, we, I mean, the Raptors were the only team to win a title without a lottery pick mm. uh, that happened last year. And they had guys who were I don't, in the NBA vernacular, they were dogs. Like right. they would not, they refused to be denied. They would not take no for an answer. And um, this ain't about making friends. It's about winning. Yeah. And I, I look at, you know, Kawhi Leonard for his year here, very professional, but when the money was on the table, there was no, there were no smiles. Right. Kyle Lowry's the same way, you know, like, and I think that trickled down the line, Fred Van Vliet, Norman Powell, you know, you, you watch all these guys. 
uh, and and they they kind of take took that from Kawhi and Kyle and 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 made it their own. And right. I, I don't you know, B, I don't I don't think you can succeed without having that kind of single mindedness. And and you know, my 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 mom and dad have they my mom has a great line: "You can't make a cake without breaking the eggs." <laughs> It's a fact. Right? You know, and dad, dad used to say, you can't cook with cold grease. Like, it, it, like, I'm sorry, this is not about trying to do this nicely. Yeah. You, you want results. This is, this is, these are some of the things that you're going to have to do. And um, I, I'm glad that this generation fellows is seeing mm. what we saw. And as much as people want to compare guys to Michael, to me, the closest comparison is Kobe. Sure. As you said, B, he took some of the playbook. Michael gave him the playbook. Right. Michael let him read it. Yeah, yeah. But any of the comparisons to Jordan, I mean, you can compare empirical and quantitative numbers per 36. What All I know is this guy would dig your eye out to win. Yeah. He would step on you to win. And he went to the finals six times. His team won six times. And he was the best player six times. <laughs> so, like, I don't know what you're comparing to. Yeah, and I, I I love LeBron. I, these guys are this generation has some amazing players. Sure, but they're not Michael, and I don't say that in a disrespectful way. Just looking at what he what he did, how he didn't did it without the, you know the the kind of oh let's be politically correct. No man, I got to get this done, and I'm I'm sorry if you if you're hurt by this. This is the results speak for themselves. The, 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 the end justifies the means, whether you like it or not. Now, do you think the time dictates that at all in the way that, you know, um, LeBron James and the Steph, I mean, not to say that Michael Jordan obviously wasn't a marketing genius. He might've been, you know, among the greatest marketing geniuses there ever were, but I wonder, and, and I, I say this because in the music industry, I've seen it too, where sort of this, you know, this bad boy version of a rock and roller from the 60s and the 70s and the kind of shit they pulled is extremely romanticized. But if you try to do anything like that these days, you, you, you suffer greatly for it. You know, yeah. and, if, and if a Steph Curry is towing the line, I mean, that guy mm -hmm. never says anything wrong. You know what I mean? He never says anything bad about a teammate. And I feel like it's part of his his image and his marketing. And since everybody's their own little marketing genius on social media, that they don't, they almost don't have the, the same kind of sway that these guys had as far as what they could get away with in the public eye. And, um, and maybe they would have been uh, much smaller as a result. Michael had a good image. It's we're kind of seeing the stuff behind the scenes now, <laughs> right, right? 30, 40 right. years later. So, you know, Gatorade and Haynes and 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 all of these people, McDonald's, like they they I mean, they wanted the guy that was winning and had that appeal. Mm -hmm. And and that's what he said. And I just think um we've evolved to a point where um there's an there's an overtone of political correctness in everything we do. Sure. You know, the everybody gets a trophy mentality. Like, wow, that, that kid worked hard. And, and yeah, like back in our day, I worked hard too, but if I didn't sure. win, I didn't get no trophy. Like right. it was, it was, it was, that's the way it was. So I think we've got an, you know, we've got an evolution in, in, in culture and acceptance. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, it used to be, it used to be 
don't necessarily listen to the way the message is delivered. Get the message. Right. And now it's, well, I'm trying to get the message across, but I want to deliver it in such a way that it, and back then, it, like, you know, I, th- I think of the players and the tough guys of that era. Charles Oakley was sending you a message and, <laughs> right. and you got it. Yeah, and, yeah, and he yeah. didn't care if you were upset. Just, you know, you drive in here, I'm going to knock you down. And, <laughs> and the bad boy Pistons sent that message. And, sure. and, and, you know, Pat Riley's Knicks that, to me, were the first ones to bring the word force into the game. Like, they, they got that. And those things hardened Michael Jordan, and he used them to, you know, iron sharpens iron. He used them to harden his teammates so they could win championships. And I'm sure some of that goes on still in our world, fellas, but behind closed doors, closed doors, and we don't hear about it. So you're I'm, saying Andrew Wiggins needed Kevin Garnett. Yeah, he did. <laughs> and, and you know what? He, he, he you know, once, once you're able to say, you know, in the words of Nino Brown from that era, it's not personal, B, just business. <laughs> no, nice. just business. Good drop, good drop. And, and, and a lot of people get offended. And it's not until somebody takes you aside and say, look, you know, like, like your parents. My dad wasn't, my mom and dad weren't interested in being my friends. They wanted to make sure I got the message and I understood. We can be friends 20 years from now, but right now, I need you to do this. I need you yeah. to understand this. And, and, you know, Damon Stoudemire and, and all the guys who were first-year Raptors talked about, you know, the Raptor, Alvin Robertson. The guy was a crazy competitor. Mm. But Damon and Tracy, uh, Tracy uh, uh, Murray and, and Doug Christie, and they all talk, as you said, romantically through that lens about the toughness of Alvin Robertson and what he gave them. And Brendan Malone, being one of the assistants with the bad boys, coached the team like that. Mm. And, you know, Phil Jackson, he, he says in his book, it's important for the media not to be in practice so we can go at it and be like a family and criticize each other over the dinner, dinner table and do what we have to do. So when we walk out the door, we know what's everybody knows what's going on. And, you know, that that era is is one of a past era. And I don't think we're. I don't think we're going to get it back, but it was effective. Don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah, you brought up uh, Michael's image and and all of that stuff. How, in, in your experience around the game, have you seen athletes going from just being able to make money and not really be socially active to these guys today being able to speak their mind and it not affect their bank account? Well, and and I, you know, I was listening to a, a great uh, a great drop on first first take. Stephen A. Smith, who has the perspective, who's been covering the league for a long time. These guys can speak out now, but, um, you know, there's an old adage that said, settlers, uh, the, the, the pioneers get the hardships, the settlers get the land. Mm. Right. And these guys now are, in a sense, they're getting the land yeah. uh, with, with people like, you know, and, and it was a throwaway line we find out now with Jordan's Republicans wear sneakers too. But he didn't have the money in, in, in the quantities that these guys do now to basically have the screw you money. Well, it doesn't matter what I say. I got my money and I'm going to make my money. So I'm going to say my piece. That was at the start of that era. And, you know, guys like Michael and I mean, to think we saw in last, last dance, Scotty Pippen signed a, 
a seven year, seven $16 million dollar contract or something like that. Yeah. Are you kidding? That's yeah. pocket. That's, that's pocket change. Now that's, that's, I mean, that's, that's a guy. That's a guy. Yeah. It's a guy on a minimum deal right now. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, I think athletes understand that. And again, with the umbrella of political correctness, shading everything, they're careful with their image but at the same time, they do have a line that they, they won't cross and the image will have to take a back seat if they want to speak out on an issue. And I admire them for that. I really, really do. But it wasn't like that back then. And guys had to maybe hold their tongues a little bit here and there. Well, another way Jordan kind of broke the mold, and we saw it last night, the decision to retire after 1993, everything that happened that, that season going into that season between the loss of his dad and all that stuff. What do you remember uh, firsthand from that event? I was sitting watching the Toronto Blue Jays, who were in the, the ALCS against, uh, uh, against, I think it was the White Sox. That was the Joe Carter years. Yeah, yeah. and... Somebody said, I, now my brother Mark being at ESPN was plugged into agents and, and writers and stuff. And I mean, there's no cell phones. He calls me on the phone and says, dang, I, Jordan's going to retire. I'm like, what? I think we got a bad connection. You said Jordan's <laughs> going to retire. I'm like, no. He's like, no, man, this is happening. And he's talking to agents and there's writers and there's people kind of throwing that out there. And I was, I was, I was floored when I heard. But then, you know, to exercise some perspective, my dad, who watched the Cleveland Browns back in the 60s, said, well, hey, man, maybe he's pulling a Jimmy Brown. Mm. You know, guy retired at the height of his career. Right. I said, maybe, maybe Michael's had enough and he's just doing that. And I said, really, he's going to do that? And he did. You know, he did. And, and I just remember thinking, this is, he's, he, there's something going on here. And whether you buy into which was deposed in the, in the last dance, the, the gambling, you know, suspension, kind of the gambling issues. I, I just, I couldn't put it together that he had really retired. And I guess after watching the last couple of episodes uh, with Michael talking about, you know, this is not really a lifestyle um, and, and chasing something else. I could totally see that happening. I could totally see that happening. And, um, you know, sometimes people see ghosts where there are no ghosts, but, uh, you know, you listen to him and you listen to other people and it's pretty clear he'd had his fill of the NBA and all the, the circus stuff that went with it and he needed a break. I think people, uh, you know, and I've seen this a lot in music and even with some other athletes, like, you know, Muhammad Ali had a huge break in his career, Tiger Woods, these people who sort of had resets, you know, and, yeah. and the ability to take a step back from what you're doing. And I've seen it in music too, you know. It's all about controlling runs and people, I think, don't realize the, the connection of people in a locker room is a lot like a traveling band or something where when you when you strike gold and you find some lightning and something magical is happening, you ride it as long as you can. Yes. You make sure you know it's special. You work as hard as you can in that window, but it is impossible to sustain. And I think the really, really great artists, and I consider Michael Jordan an artist in a lot of ways for how much he invented, is you have to understand that balance of how much you can give and what you're going to get back as a result. And I think Michael Jordan, you know, when I see this whole situation play out, it seems pretty obvious to me. 
like, you know, obviously it's revisionist history, but he just saw something, I think. I think he saw something in the cards right ahead that knew he couldn't be the guy who was going to win the championship with this team that next year and something <laughs> had to give because that was the only bar he had. And, and I really do, uh, I see the similarity and I respect musicians who know if I'm going to go ahead and put out another record right now, it's not going to be as good as 93, but it's right. going to keep my career going. And he wasn't okay with that. And the great ones usually aren't. And it, it seems like that's what he was going for. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree, B. If, if, you, if you can't do it to the level of your own expectations, you right. know, somebody else might say that's great, but to you, that's not good enough. Right. And, and you say, you know what, I'm not doing this till I can do it properly. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, you know, if you're a shopper, you're going to a place and you're looking for a particular suit or pair of shoes and they're trying to sell you something else. You're like, no, nah, man, I'm looking at it. That's not what I want. Yeah. And, right. and, I, and I really think Michael was that way. And he talked about it when he came back on the second uh, three-peat that all these guys had come in and they hadn't won anything, but they're like, yeah, I'm playing for the Bulls. Well, you ain't done squat. Right, right. Oh, Steve Kerr, Luke Longley, you, you, ain't, you ain't done nothing. But I'm playing for the Bulls. Yeah, but we won those championships without you. And by the way, if you want to win another one, here's what you're going to have to do. Yeah. So um, um, I, I love the fact that this documentary is showing people of our gener of this generation of our present generation what it was like and what you had to put into it and and that's why to me you can only compare numbers but there's no other comparable to michael jordan last one for me do you really think that mj still to this day respects steve Kerr? because it was a little sure. dicey in there <laughs> no i think he does i think he does and and i mean he seems like when you know when he said he got his number and he he wanted to call him and apologize. He said, the line that struck me, he says, I'm standing in the shower after being kicked out of practice saying, I just punched the smallest guy. Like you feel, you know, right. and he said that. And it's, and, and, and it says something about him that he got Kerr's number, apologized. But in that vein, Michael is one of those guys that, as he said, he wanted Scott Burrell to come back at him. Show me, show me. Do you really care? Show me some passion. And you know it. It's not. You know, people are, it's like on our social media generation, people are keyboard warriors until you, 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 you hit back at them. They're like, Oh, my bad. Sorry. You know, I was yeah, just, yeah, yeah. you know, I was just joking. I, you know, so I, I think Michael respected the fact that Steve was willing to, you know, to engage him and, you know, it's like, all right, we fought, we're boys. Now I can roll with you and you yeah. can roll with me. Speaking of fighting, now, you were talking earlier about, you know, the late 80s, obviously the bad boys and teams like that. Now, let me give you this comp. You got Bill Ambeer and Isaiah Thomas going against Kyle Lowry and Serge Ibaka. Two, what I imagine to be the more modern tough guys in this league. Can they hold a candle or was the generation just too, too far ahead of them? No, they would. They would. Because, They're tough guys, right? Yeah, and I, and I say if if Kyle and Serge had been able to play in that generation, yeah. they'd have said, Oh, this is how it is. Okay. Right. 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 right? And, and it's, it's the same. It's the argument about great players. Oh, LeBron couldn't play in the nineties. Yes, he could. Yes, right. he could. Oh no, Jordan, there's better athletes now. That's right. And you can't touch them because basically 
And I put it out there on Twitter and the silence gave me my answer. <laughs> I tweeted at the NBA officials, including one of the guys who's the best in the world and Steve Javi. Mm. So true or false, every foul the Pistons committed against Jordan was either a flagrant one or a flagrant two. <laughs> Question mark. Yeah. I got no answer. <laughs> All right. So, you know. the, ans- the, the no answer was my answer. That's the answer. And, and yeah, uh, yeah I, I, there are a number of guys that are, they're not fake tough guys. They're tough in this generation. And I think they would have been, you know, tough in the 80s and 90s too. They would have been fine. Um, so this is a fun one. What's your favorite Canadian musical artist of all time? Wow. You got a um, number one? By the way, nah. Danny, Danny thought you were going to say Drake. Uh, <laughs> Drake is up there. It's on the building. Um, it's on the building, man. <laughs> I got I to tell you, Drake putting his stamp on the Raptors really yeah. helped. Mm. Yeah, that you, was know? Big. you know, like it's the same way. And, and back in the day before Drake in the inaugural season, we had Samuel L. Jackson doing movies up here and sitting courtside. He was our he was our Jack Nicholson, our, our Billy Crystal, you know, like our Spike Lee pretty good uh, it was it was samuel l but um i mean i was a new jersey nets fan we only had danny aiello so <laughs> it works <laughs> it works um i don't know if i have one favorite canadian artist um you can you can name them all off and i'm like i can roll with any of them like if it's yeah. canadian and regardless of what genre it is from you know glass tiger to 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 drake you know, to, to, to my Brian guy, Cardinal Official, Brian <laughs> Adams, like, like, you know, you, you name them all. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm rolling with my, I'm, people would be surprised some of the stuff that, you know, that's, that's on my, my, uh, my playlist, right? Like they're like, Jonesy, really? Meatloaf, <laughs> ACDC? Like, I'm like, Hey man, like, why not? You know, it's like, yeah. comes with the times. So, that's it. um, you know, I, I'm, I'm good with all of them. So you can't you can't declare your uh, Mount Rushmore at this point. No, it's a it's a big it's a it's the whole Rockies. You're gonna have to carve right across the Rockies from from Calgary right to Van, right I to Vancouver. It. Canada pride. Well, if Little Richard was the originator of rock and roll, Paul Jones has to be the godfather of the Sunday matinee in Toronto. Paul, thank you so much for the time, man. <laughs> My pleasure, guys. Thanks, I appreciate it, Paul. All right, plenty of ways to get in contact with the show. You can email us at vtuneup podcast at gmail.com two p's in there don't forget it you can follow us on twitter at the tune-up hq follow benny on twitter at benny horowitz one number one in your mind number one in your heart number one on twitter i'm at denny underscore gallagher benny you got anything else you know how paul brought me back he called me he was calling me b in that interview <laughs> and now that, that was my old basketball name big b <laughs> big b is what my teammates called me it made me feel good when he was saying that remembering my my days is a point forward. But thanks for coming out, Paul, this week. Everybody love everybody. Jerry Stiller, serenity now, serenity now. You'll be missed. You want a piece of this? <laughs> Come and get it. This has been the tune-up. <laughs> <laughs>